welcome to Weird Studies, an art and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martel. For more episodes and to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Hesitant by M. R. James, published by Penguin Classics. Is that what you have? Sorry, I, no. I have an old, very beat up Penguin edition that belonged to my dad. That like the cover's all fallen off, and right. It's like that. The fairly cheap, uh, high acid paper is sort of beginning to turn to dust. But I'm rather fond of this book. I like to think that this book has. Like, it makes a difference that I read The Mesitant in this particular book rather than, like, getting it on Kindle mm. or something. Because I'd like to think that this particular book is haunted. Yes. And that if I read it, it will present me with um, uh, the elliptical narration of a terrible event that took place many decades ago. Yes. It has an aura, your book. Your copy. It does have, you know, it actually it really does, probably because it belonged to my dad. And because I remember plucking it off the shelf when I was a kid, my parents kept most of their books in the basement, where it was where my sister and I played. I would pick through my parents' books and look at them and try and understand the adult-sized ideas and experiences contained in them. Of course, I didn't. But I remember seeing a book that says, Ghost Stories of an Antiquary. Of course, I don't know what an antiquary is, but I know what a ghost is. Pick the book off the shelf. And I think I was reading M.R. James before I was really equipped even to understand him. I just wanted to be in this. I, I wanted to find something special in this book. Hmm. And eventually I did. I mean, at like a certain point, I was like, you know, I don't know. My, my comprehension was up for what M.R. James had to show me. I find these stories to be creepy in a way that almost no other ghost stories are. Yeah, no, he's he's definitely the master of the ghost story. The only author I think maybe picked up on what he did and kind of pushed it even further is Robert Aikman. Huh, I've never read anything of his. He's a fantastic weird fiction author. And his stories, I mean, he called his work strange stories. That's what he, he called them. So, mm. uh, but he's more of a weird author than a ghost, but he's often, you know, the ghost recurs in his work as a kind of light motif. But the way he uses and deploys the figure of the ghost is very unique. M.R. James as well. M.R. James too. But M.R. James is, he seems to be kind of the culmination or the consummation of the Gothic, of the 19th century Gothic. And, uh, and he's pushing it in these new directions. So the story we're discussing today is The Mesitant by M.R. James. And this is this, it's a very simple story. It's a story of a, a man named Williams who um, works for a museum, for a university. And he, his job is to buy topographical drawings for the university collection. And he knows this seller in London. The seller's name is Britnet. Britnell? Yeah, Britnell. Britnell. So Britnell sends him a note saying, you know, here's our new catalog. I call your attention to picture number 978. Check it out. It's, it's interesting. 
So just out of respect for the seller's opinion, uh, Williams orders this particular piece, and it's a mezzotint, which is a, a type of print, a kind of illustration of a country house. And at first he's not moved by it, and Brittnell's asking for a lot of money for this mezzotint, and Williams is confused as to why this is. But then slowly, um, Williams shows the picture to his friends, each one who looks at it sees something more in it, like, oh, the, the, there's something special about this illustration, this mezzotint. And eventually the magic kicks in, like a series of events starts to happen in the mezzotint. So in the first time he looks at it, there's no one in the picture, just this country house. And then the second time they look at it, there's a man crawling into the frame. And and then it turns out that the mezzotint is telling a story which has to do with the circumstances under which it was created. So in a fairly kind of classical Gothic way, this is an example of the, the spooky portrait or the spooky artwork motif, right? Trope. And in the end, what it, should we give it away? Should we spoil it? I kind um, of feel like if you're listening to a podcast on a short story, you're, you've got to be ready for spoilers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in, yeah. The end, uh, in the end, it turns out that the mezzotint was made by a man who lost his infant son three years before he made it. The picture he made is telling the truth about his son's death. Basically, this his son was taken away and murdered by someone who wanted to end his line, uh, to basically just put an end to his family line. So fairly classic Gothic theme there. But the mezzotint is interesting for all kinds of reasons. And it took me a couple of readings to see it. And now I have this whole freaking theory about it. But I don't want to jump in now and kind of hijack the whole podcast. So maybe if you want to just share your initial I like the idea that you're just going to start droning on and on about your <laughs> bullshit theory about the mezzotint. 45 dreary minutes pass. And then uh, and you'll be like, so what do you think of that, Phil? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Checks out. Sounds, sounds pretty good. <laughs> All right. Well, that's our show. <laughs> It just ends up being one long, dreary monologue. Well, I've, yeah, well, I, yeah, I don't want to do that. At the same time, if I don't share this theory on this show, then I'll never have a chance to do it. I think, oh, I think you should. I'm, feel, I'm feeling lazy. I don't feel like coming up with any ideas. You do it. Well, the interesting thing about the mezzotint and what makes it different, you know, it's, so it's a take on an old Gothic trope, right? The, the haunted portrait. So we could go to, like, for other examples, you know, Edgar Allan Poe's The Oval Portrait, right? So this guy walks into an empty mansion and becomes obsessed or fascinated in the magical sense with this portrait of a woman. And the old Gothic idea that the portrait in the parlor uh, represents the ancestor who was buried alive underneath the manor house and whose ghost is now crying for justice or for some kind of uh, redemption. You know, so so this is an old idea, but the, the, the thing that makes the mezzotint different is that, well, the mezzotint in the story is a mezzotint, so it's not an original. It's not an original artwork. It's a reproduction. So a mezzotint is basically, the way they, they make mezzotints is you, you draw an image on a copper plate, and then you use the copper plate, you know, to, to print various copies of the image on onto paper. There is no original mezzotint. A mezzotint is by nature a copy the original is the copper plate, which is usually destroyed in the process of printing. But what's interesting here is that a copy or a reproduction packs all the force that an original does in other Gothic stories. And that was interesting to me because it made me think of Walter Benjamin's essay, 
the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction. Because in that essay, Benjamin, and this is one of the foundational, you know, texts of modern aesthetic thinking, is that the uh, original artwork, like artworks gain all their value from their uniqueness. And in an age where artworks can be reproduced mechanically, art loses what Benjamin calls its aura, the aura it once had, and art becomes a commodity. And whatever power art has in the modern world has to come from its, from its, uh, from the commodity character. Right, has to come from its commodity character, exactly. Well, the question is, what is this aura that Benjamin talks about? And Benjamin's very clear about it. He says that, well, the aura of a work of art, so, so before the age of mechanical reproductions, if you wanted to see a painting, you had to travel to wherever it was and look at it. There was no other way of seeing it. There was the uniqueness of the artwork gave it a kind of singularity that gave it a specific place and time and space. And, um, and this is this is just as true in music, by the way, that if you wanted to hear, I always told my students before the invention of recording, if you wanted to hear music, you had to go to where it is made or you had to make it yourself. Exactly. Uh, there's no, There's no identity of music aside from its presence as an event, unless you're performing some abstract operation of analysis like with a score right but of course recording creates the possibility of infinite reproduction of time exactly benjamin's thesis was that this reproducibility of the artwork in the modern age strips the artwork of the aura it had before so that aura which comes from it the uniqueness of the work and its spatiotemporal specificity dissolves in an age where artworks can be reproduced and he traces this idea that art has an aura back to the very dawn of history, to magic. He says the work of art was first and foremost, initially, an object of magic. So it was a magical instrument. And he says that aura, the aura that art develops through time, is inseparable from tradition. And in fact, that art by its nature serves as a kind of reinforcement of tradition and existing power structures. And that the, the mechanical reproduction of works of art liberates art to become a kind of revolutionary instrument that's opposed to tradition. That's kind of his argument. So, so by stripping, for example, I don't know, Michelangelo's David, by stripping it of its aura, by reproducing endless photographs of it, you uh, demystify it and disempower it insofar as it serves to maintain certain archetypal ideas about how the world is constructed, certain mythological narratives and all that, and it, it dislodges... Well, for example, the ideal of beauty that the sculpture of David embodies. Exactly. Um, to, to put it in a contemporary kind of cultural studies-ish idiom, you know, there's a, in the modern academy a very great suspicion of beauty because beauty's radically unfair, right? If beauty right. is a thing that exists, then some people have beauty and others don't, and there doesn't seem to be any connection to individual worth or whether whether it's fair that somebody get this boon that another person doesn't get. And in what I think is a classic confusion of is and ought, a lot of people are apt to sort of say that since beauty is uh, kind of a scandal in a purely egalitarian world, therefore it doesn't exist, um, right. which not sure I quite agree with that with that train of thought, but whatever. Leaving that aside, if we think about beauty as an ideological construct, 
you know, that the ideal of beauty that David represents is perhaps like a very particular kind of white European idea of beauty that is being promulgated everywhere as the ideal of like what a human being should be. It's like a phony universality that is being inflicted on all the people of the world, among other things, as a way of reproducing an ideology of white supremacy. So I just made that up off the top of my head, but that's actually a fairly typical way of thinking about how a work of art has an ideological character that needs to be demystified, that needs to be, that we need to be disembedded from. Exactly. Right. And, and so, so if I'm understanding the way you're breaking down the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction, for Benjamin, what you lose on the one hand, which is that erratic sense of the individuality of the work of art, it's the impact it gains by virtue of it being a singularity, a singular event in space and time. What stripped away is that power, but since that power very often has a kind of an ideological mystification attached to it, what you gain, on the other hand, is the power of demystification that comes through reproduction. Is that more or less uh, yeah, what you're saying? That, yeah, that's 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 exactly it. It's part, but there's more to it than that. So just to get back to your point about beauty, I think it's a good point. Right at the right at the beginning of the essay, Benjamin says the new conditions under which art is being produced in the modern world of mechanical reproduction, and I'm quoting him: the new conditions are brushing aside outmoded concepts such as creativity and genius, eternal value and mystery, concepts whose uncontrolled and at present almost uncontrollable application would lead to a processing of data in the fascist sense. He puts all his cards on the table there. He's basically saying that any valuation, any upholding of concepts such as genius, eternal value, mystery, creativity, implies fascism. This is Benjamin's great critique, that the democratization of art that happens under the conditions of mechanical reproduction enable art to become an instrument of revolution. Uh, whereas before it was by its nature, because of its materiality, because of its singularity in space and time, could only serve to uphold tradition. You could you could break it down very simply. You could say, well, in order for, for David to survive as a statue, it needs to be encased in some kind of place where it's protected from the elements. It needs to have a certain type of light. Traffic to it needs to be controlled or else it'll be graffitied and vandalized. The appreciation of David as a, as a material object implies a whole social structure that needs to be there for it to survive as an object, for it, for it to exist at all. Mm -hmm. But then he, he does something really, really interesting. We'll get back to the mesitant <laughs> eventually. But what Benjamin does next is he distinguishes two types of value that apply to the artwork. So an artwork has ritual value. And that comes from its original context in magic and religion. And it has exhibition value. And these two types of value correspond roughly to Marx's use value and exchange value. So the use value of an artwork mm -hmm. for Benjamin is its ritual value. And its ritual value comes from its aura. And then its exhibition value is its use as a commodity, how it should be shared with the public, how it participates in a public in a, in a wider discourse. So he makes an interesting observation. He says, at the very beginning of art, it wasn't necessary for an artwork to be shown to anyone. In fact, some of the earliest cave paintings look like they were created in places where no one would ever see them because the art in itself had ritual value. 
its use was a direct magical thing. Like you made art like a sigil in order to obtain an effect. So you would paint a buffalo with arrows in it to help you in the hunt. Uh, mm -hmm. No one had to see it. In fact, it might be better that no one sees it. And that still exists in sigil magic today. So we make sigils and yeah. they're like little works of art that we hide away or destroy. And no one ever sees them. And that's where we think they gain their power. Um, Worth noting, by the way, that some of the oldest cave complexes that have Paleolithic art in them, a lot of the art is in places that are actually as far away from light and the surface as possible. Yeah. And often in places that... Uh, it took actually a long time for people to discover there was art there at all, like in very far out of the way, dim, shadowy reaches mm -hmm. of caves, mm -hmm. all of which suggests that this was not art that was being created to be exhibited, but quite the opposite. It was art whose power came from its very hiddenness. Right, exactly. And there's, uh, there are other examples. If you move forward in history, you know, the, the sacred statues that were hidden away in this, you know, sanctum sanctorum in this temple where only one or two priests could ever see it. Or like I, I made that joke when we talked to Eric Davis about the, the dildo in the basket as a kind of like <laughs> disappointing, disappointing punchline at the end of your initiation into a secret society. Well, that that's actually a reference to a real thing like the Eleusis Mysteries in ancient Greece. It's theorized that at the end you would enter this room and open up a basket and there'd be a phallus in it. But this phallus was the sculpted phallus. So the, the idea that art gains power from being hidden or that the idea that, that an artwork will have power whether it's seen or not, that's ritual value, that it has an inherent value, as it has an inherent use value in itself. And then as the aura of art dissolves or disintegrates in the age of mechanical reproduction, then the exhibition value becomes all that matters. So basically now an artwork doesn't exist unless it's being appreciated by a public. So that's Benjamin's thesis. And I think that what James is doing in The Mesitant is arguing for art's ritual value in the age of mechanical reproduction. That art still has uh, magical properties, objective that is, objective properties, in the age of mechanical reproduction. By the way, I want to put in one quote that pertains to what you were just talking about. This is Marshall McLuhan. He said, the magic of the cave image lies in its being, not its being seen. The symbolic does not refer, it is. Yes. And I quite like that. And one thing he's pointing out is sort of like, we're always used to this idea of symbols and artworks generally not that i can use the word symbol and the word artwork synonymously but they are clearly related we're very used to the idea of representation or reference so i draw a painting of an apple uh, or a pipe right to use a famous example what you're looking at is not really a pipe it's a painting of a pipe hence magritte's famous painting this is not a pipe it's like a painting of a pipe and yeah. With this, with this, it, and it says in French, this is not a pipe. To remind you that, yeah, you're not looking at an actual pipe, you're looking at a representation. And this may seem like a fatuous and obvious little jape, but what McLuhan is trying to remind us of, what's coming up in this conversation, is an idea of art that's much older and that doesn't have to do with the idea of art as a stand in for something else. 
for merely a representation or a reference to some real-world object. But the idea of it, rather, art is not a performance of reality. It is a chunk of reality unto itself. And the fact that it bears a likeness, that it bears a dependent relationship on something, like a painting of a buffalo with arrows sticking in it, wouldn't exist if there wasn't such a thing as a buffalo, right? Right. Um, but the fact that the image is in that dependent relationship with a referent in the real world in no way circumscribes the power of the symbol. Exactly. That the symbol has its autonomous power. It is. that in in a sense you could argue contra Benjamin that it is only in the age of mechanical reproduction where art can be kind of distantiated or, or, or somewhat where the um, the dependence of the artwork on its own materiality becomes a little looser where art can become a little bit detached from its material embodiment because of reproduction it's only there that we get to see something that was there all along which is that Art has an actual existence, like an artwork has an actual existence and it has a virtual existence. And the symbol is the virtual power in the art. That's what McLuhan means, I think, when he says the symbol is. means a picture of a buffalo drawn and never shown anyone still exerts a force of some sort in the world, whether or not people see it. That the likeness of the of the buffalo drawing the representational aspect of the picture of the buffalo is just part of what is going on in the work it's not mm-hmm. you can't just boil it down to that and think that you've done away with it once you've figured out what it represents and that's exactly what materialist thinkers like benjamin do all the time and uh, Clement Greenberg, an art critic I've been rereading in preparation for this conversation, they're materialists, so they don't believe in the reality of ideas. It's as simple as that. Whereas yeah. I think that once you entertain the possibility that ideas have their own reality, then, well, every work of art certainly contains some kind of idea. That idea isn't exercised when you break the art object down to its material embodiment or to its medium. The artwork is not the thing. The artwork is a gateway for something to come in, for, for a symbol to manifest. Hmm. That at least is the, that's the argument I made in Reclaiming Art, and um, I'm reading James's story in that context. Okay, so let's take it back to James's story. So how do we make these ideas play out, or how do these ideas play out in the mezzotin? Well... So Williams, the main character, the protagonist, obtains this mezzotint. And at first, he's just confused. He doesn't see any value in it. But then it starts to grow on him as other people look at it and point out details that he thinks he just missed these details. But eventually, it turns out that the picture is actually changing, that the mezzotint is, in fact, a kind of film or comic strip that's telling a story that you can't get just by reducing the picture to its representational content, because the picture is just a picture of a country house. 
but it's it's containing a lot more information than that. An entire event is kind of distilled in this image. The way that I kind of saw the light with this story, at least my own light, uh, was um, by imagining it told without the supernatural elements. And I think you could tell the same story without any recourse to the supernatural. And that would be by just, you know, a guy buys a print, buys a mezzotint, looks at it, at first thinks nothing of it. Then a friend of his looks at it and says, oh man, the moonlight's really nice in this. And then he looks at it again and then he looks at it and then he becomes obsessed with it. And since the tag on the back of the mezzotint is torn, he can't see where it's from. He, so he's, he becomes obsessed with tracking down the source of this particular artwork. And when he finally finds the truth, he discovers that the artwork was made under tragic circumstances. That basically all along he was reading this tragedy into this, this representation that didn't explicitly refer to it at all that it was somehow implicit, virtually present in the work. James adds the supernatural into the story to make it more interesting, but it also, it's truer to the nature of art than if he'd done it in a, just a purely literary mode. That's really interesting. For some reason, this is making me think of Marcel Duchamp and his ready-mades. For those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, Marcel Duchamp's this French artist the early 20th century, or at least these experiments I'm talking about were first conducted right around World War I. Duchamp famously wanted to enter the armory show in New York, where their whole thing was that they were going to display every work of art that was submitted to them. And so Duchamp went to a plumbing goods supply store and bought a urinal, and he signed it, R. Mutt, not his actual name and gave it a title, Fountain, and submitted it to the Armory Show. And it caused a scandal um, because, you know, it was like such a brilliant move. How do you, with a single, arguably very lazy gesture, like a single very simple act, how do you upend as many assumptions about what art is and what it does and what makes it valuable? How can you, what one thing can I do to upset as many of those assumptions as possible? And it turns out that signing a urinal and giving it a title and calling it fountain uh, is pretty much that. Yeah. Um, because for one thing, you say, well, who's the artist here? Surely it was the industrial designer who created the urinal. Well, no, because the idea of calling it fountain and repositioning it in a gallery, that was an idea of Marcel Duchamp's, right? Anyway, so Duchamp created what he called ready-mades, which are objects that you can just go to a store and buy. So a hat rack or bottle rack, uh, a bicycle wheel, you know, whatever. These are just like everyday objects. And in fact, the Indiana University Art Museum has a collection of his ready-mades. He came out with editions of them, just like you would come out with editions of a print or editions of a photograph, you know, editions of an art object that is inherently a multiple, right? Now, the low-hanging fruit interpretation is to say that what Duchamp is doing is allowing the commodity function of the artwork to come to the fore. The way that we give value to things by virtue of how we position them within our critical discourses and within our institutions. Yeah. So take a almost worthless plumbing fixture, a cheap plumbing fixture, and 
reposition it on the alien terrain of art criticism, and all of a sudden, it gains all this value. But you didn't really do anything to the object, right? Materially, nothing has changed. What you've done is changed the reality around it in such a way that now this thing is really valuable. Well, that would be one way of looking at it. But another way of looking at it, maybe where we're heading, is that actually Duchamp is doing something really cool by taking everyday objects, you know, a ready-made, uh, something that is by definition a mass-reproduced and utilitarian object, but by presenting it as a ready-made in a museum, suddenly the replica object becomes a little bit uncanny. You've plucked this one urinal out of all of the other thousands of urinals you could have walked out with, right? But when you reposition it in this alien terrain, it becomes almost radioactive with meaning. It's stripped of that quality we have of like not noticing. Mm -hmm. You know, I always say like, let's say you get a car and it breaks down you put it up on blocks and you kind of fix it or you tinker with it, but you don't really succeed in fixing it. And you're like, oh shit, I'll just get back to that later. And then you put it off and you put it off. And after a while, when you look out the window, you don't even see the car. No, you see right? the concept. It's, yeah, this is how you can end up with a house that looks like a crazy person lives there. Because if you don't pay attention to the fact that crap is accumulating in your house, like you haven't put all the newspapers and pizza boxes away, after a while, you just sort of, it blends into the scenery. You don't notice it as a pizza box sitting on your shelf, right? Or whatever point is that human mind has this way of just sort of like taking an object and seeing uh, you don't even see, you don't see the object you might as well just see a little post-it note in place of the object that says car up on blocks or pizza box that's exactly what Bergson said he said we don't see the objects we don't see reality we just see the the labels affixed fixed to it right so and yet what yeah. and yet what and and you could argue i'm i'm not sure benjamin would argue but you could argue that the regime of industrial reproduction mechanical reproduction that the aura that it strips away from the object is exactly that sense of an object being a thing in itself and then like the reproduced object simply becomes the instance of a type but the thing is that actually I think the opposite happens with Duchamp's ready-mades, that they become strangely reinvested with some kind of oracular energy. Yeah. I love Duchamp, I, I, and I, I love that move he made with uh, Fountain. But I think it's, he's a kind of Christ figure in art history, like once and once only. And for someone to do ready-mades after Duchamp is comparable to me to someone like playing the part of Jesus in the Passion Play. Um, hmm. Like, he did this once, he showed us something, and then it quickly gets appropriated into the commodity culture that he was, mm -hmm. I think he was trying to, to challenge. He, he was yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, he was basically saying art's already commodified. Even originals are commodified. And, and I'm trying to bring us back to some kind of essence of art that transcends that. And what he's doing is basically just allowing art fans to experience what artists experience 
as a part of the process of creating a work. So if you're a painter, well, beyond just the skill you have at painting, what makes you a great painter is your ability to look at the world and see things in sing as singularities. One of my favorite painters, Wilhelm Hammershoy, he's a Danish painter. He would paint empty rooms, just regular empty rooms in a regular flat in Copenhagen, I believe. But they're just they're they're filled with uncanny power because he was able to see in the world that we normally don't notice something absolutely miraculous going on in it. Something that singularity is asserting itself at every moment, even in a world filled with instances of a type. So there's something absolutely unique about each urinal because each urinal emerges into experience in a specific field, in a specific moment, yeah. in a specific yeah, context. Yeah, that's right. And so there's no, there's no reducing things to instances of a type. But that's precisely what Benjamin is doing in his essay. Mm -hmm. he, he's a materialist, so one thing's as good as another. And Duchamp, although I think Duchamp was a Marxist, but whatever, um, the, Duchamp's doing something different, or at least the way that I interpret it, and I interpret it much like you do. He's he's reminding us of something that undergirds an aesthetic vision that goes well beyond materialism, uh, an, mm -hmm. an aesthetic vision that that brings us back, in fact, to that original practice of art as magic. And it's worth noting that if, even if we say, well, Duchamp was a materialist and he didn't view his own ready-mades this way at all. I will say that arguably his greatest disciple, the person who he influenced the most and to greatest effect, John Cage, definitely did take that lesson from yeah. Duchamp's example. Right. That is precisely where John Cage takes Duchamp's insights. The perfect thusness of everything, including the most uh, contemptible objects of a consumerist society. Mm. Yeah, that's true. And it's interesting that then from this point of view, okay, this is a wacky thought, but the ghost in the mezzotint is actually the ghost of modernity or a ghost that you find in modernity, which is like the ghost of the presentness of the object. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Sort, sort of. Like, what is the what is repetition? You know, repetition. It well, it's a lot of things, but in the context of this conversation, repetition is the figure, the very emblem of modernity, of technological modernity. The idea that everything has to become a commodity, right? Right. Uh, and so, for something to become a commodity you are going to repeat it. Now, of course, you can create unique commodities, like a, you know, a, a, an original oil painting, right? But it only gains its value from being compared to and ranked alongside things that are deemed more or less equivalent. So even when you're talking about original artworks and original Vermeer or whatever, it is still being treated in the market as the instance of a type, other Vermeers or other... Dutch old masters or whatever. Mm. And so in a kind of regime of capitalist modernity, even so-called art originals are always already copies. Yeah. 
And then when you create techniques of mass reproduction, so now we can mass reproduce music recordings and I can mass reproduce mesotents or lithographs or other kinds of prints or whatever. When we can do that, we are offering the art object all the more efficiently to a market. But my point is that repetition becomes a figure of non-being. Yeah in modernity it's not just you know whatever it is benjamin means by the aura of an object i suspect a lot of people actually have only the vaguest understanding of this very famous essay of benjamin's but it gets endlessly recirculated and paraphrased even by people who clearly haven't read all the way to the end because i think his idea of loss of aura just makes intuitive sense like oh yeah of course repetition is a figure of non-being. It takes the whatever quality of capital B being an object has and it eliminates it simply because now we are tur turning it into an instance of a type. The thing becomes the embodiment of the idea we have of it rather than the other way around. Yeah. So I don't know if you've ever had this experience of going to a tourist trap kind of place like Niagara Falls or Mount Rushmore. Actually, I've never been to Mount Rushmore, so I don't really know what I'm talking about. But <laughs> I remember the first time I saw Niagara Falls being really disappointed because it looked exactly like all the postcards I'd ever seen of it. Like the real life thing simply becomes a repetition of something I've already seen a million times. You right. know what I mean? Yeah. To the extent that when you go on a holiday and you go see Mount Rushmore or you go see Niagara Falls, it's almost just like you're ticking a box off of just a series of things that I want to do. Actually, there's a great moment in uh, Twin Peaks Season 3 where Gordon Cole thinks that they're going to see Mount Rushmore, but then it turns out they're not going that way. So Albert, by way of consolation, gives him a picture of Mount Rushmore. Yeah. Which, which Gordon Cole then treats very seriously, looks at it, ponders it, and says, Faces of stone, Albert! <laughs> Which is a great weird moment, like typical weird moment. Yeah. Why did he say that? Faces of stone. Uh, and actually, now that I'm thinking of it, it's just sort of like he is able to take the photograph and treat it as if he's actually looking at the real thing. Yeah. Or looking at something else. Like that. that's the, the, this idea of repetition. And again, I'm going to bring up Deleuze because Deleuze wrote a book called Difference and Repetition, which is a, a fantastic and fantastically difficult book. But his, his basic argument is that philosophy has been stuck with a, a poor and impoverished idea of what repetition is. And he takes his cue from Bergson again, who Bergson said, if, if you hit the table once, so you make a sound, it's one thing. But if you hit it twice, and the more you hit it, every time there's a, there's a qualitative difference in every instance of the, mm -hmm. of the strike. So... You, there is no yeah. such thing as real rep. There's no such thing as reproduction. Repetition always pushes, drives a certain type of singularity to the fore. There is no such thing as something that is just an instance of a type. That that's the what yes. we want to believe. That's what we want to to believe, and it's part of something like Freud's death drive. We want non-being. We want to return to a state where things are already predetermined, pre-calculated, pre-known, and therefore nothing can happen. Because, you know, and Freud is, it's very interesting, his death drive. I'm reading Beyond the Pleasure Principle right now. Basically, it's this urge to go back to, to inanimate matter. 
that we we come from the inanimate and we want to get back to it. We want to sink back into the sleep, the non-being of the inanimate. And so we want everything to mean something already. We want to have a ready-made idea of everything so that we don't have to think. Heidegger was big on this too, you know, in what is called thinking. He talks about, he says, the most thought-provoking thing about our thought-provoking world is that we're still not thinking. <laughs> and hmm. because we do everything in our power not to think. So the, the whole commodity culture, the idea of, of mass production, mass reproduction of things, the endless disintegration of auras, whether it's Mount Rushmore, you disintegrate its aura by reproducing so many times that you then when you encounter it, all you're seeing is your representation of it and not the thing itself. All this is part of a tendency on the part of humans, I think, that goes way back to... Uh, project the idea that the territory of the known is infinite, that we already have everything figured out. That's mm -hmm. a kind of a simple way of putting it, but there's something to That's it. That's really interesting. Well, then from that point of view, this is sort of getting back to what I said before, that the ghost in the mezzotin is a, is a kind of a, a ghost of modernity, which is precisely that sense of the being of things and the being that emerges even in repetition. Yes. I'm tempted to say the being that emerges especially in repetition. That is the genius move that Duchamp is making. Yeah. That the being of the urinal stands out all the more starkly. Maybe that's why it was such a scandal. It's because, like, have you ever really looked at a urinal? Well, now we're really looking at a urinal. Right. And, you know, that sense of meaning in things that maybe this is what corresponds with what Heidegger means by thinking. You know, our ability to confront and encounter these things is, is what he means by thinking. I don't know if he does, but, right. but if it is, then the thinking that we resist at all costs is exactly this dealing with the world as it is, that uniqueness that emerges within repetition. Because even if you take something that is literally a perfect copy of something, two MP3 files, two identical MP3 files, you know, the same recording of the same piece of music, but you're going to encounter it at different times in a different moment. Even if I listen to it in a most cut up and rearranged possible way, even if I listen to like a, you know, John Oswald Plunder Phonics recording of it, I'm still encountering it at some particular place in some particular time in this particular body with these particular ears. And... That meaning is always already there. It never went away. But as you say, it's like somehow, and this goes beyond modernity, this goes beyond capitalism, this is just a human thing. Somehow we don't want to be real with that. We don't want to look at it. We don't want to believe it. Um, in the mezzotint, you have within this object of repetition, a mezzotint, you have this kind of uncanniness, a story told precisely once. It's important that it doesn't repeat, by the way. Yeah. That we only see the story once. And the, and the storyteller knows perfectly well that you can lock the mezzotin away and not be too worried that you're going to miss something because clearly the point of the mezzotin is to tell you this one story one time. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you see what I'm sort of trying to get at? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Um, there's a, a kind of theory of art emerging here um, where we could say maybe that 
art is the creation of singular objects that remind us of the singularity of all objects. So you could look at it that way. Mm. So nice. Uh, but but it's more than that, though. There's another side, which is that every artwork, I believe, is in itself a true singularity. Or else the theory I just described there wouldn't work if art wasn't a true singularity. But what is a true singularity? And this is where we get back to the idea of reproduction. So the advent of cinema really changed things for art, like really kind of just upended our whole understanding of what art was, I think, in various ways. One of these is the following. If I say, um, Phil, have you have you seen The Shining? And you say, Whoa, yeah. it's weird that you just asked me that. I just watched The Shining last night. Holy shit. <laughs> See? It's asserting its presence. <laughs> um, yeah, it is. God. So <laughs> what a fantastic film. Um, so, oh, yeah. So if I say, if I, I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to ask you, does The Shining exist? Uh, yes, it definitely exists because I watched it last night. Okay, well, but you're not watching it now. And it's you, The Shining isn't your DVD copy of The Shining. And The Shining isn't the original print of The Shining. The Shining is, like, let's say that on a given day, at some point, no one in the world on that day will watch The Shining. Does that mean The Shining doesn't exist during that? Like, in what sense does does The Shining exist? I think that there's something going on here where the detachment of the artwork from its specific material embodiment allows us to see how artworks have a virtual life that there is something called the shining that was added to the the sum total of what constitutes the universe there was something that came in and that exists in some sense virtually and that is manifested or it manifests when the film it basically is actualized by the film so a copy is the actualization of a virtuality. The copy is an actualization of something, of, of a virtual singularity, a real instance of something. There is something it is like to be the shining. Like The, the shining has its own existence, almost in a platonic sense. And then mm -hmm. the, that to watch the film is to allow that event, that shining event, to manifest, to actualize itself in the world. Well, you've just described the ontology of the work in the sense that that term is used in classical music, because I can say exactly the same thing about, say, a Beethoven symphony. When I go to hear it performed by the university orchestra, say, where is Beethoven's Fifth Symphony? Well, I'm hearing it right now. I'm hearing a performance of it. Okay, it's a performance of the Fifth Symphony, but where is the Fifth Symphony? Is it embodied in the score? Yeah, but that all the scores in the world don't exhaust what the Fifth Symphony is. And you can kind of talk through it in just the way you did about The Shining and come to the conclusion that Beethoven's Fifth Symphony exists outside of all of its concrete manifestations in space and time in a way that really does feel an awful lot like a platonic form, that yeah. all of its appearances in the world as performances or as recordings or as printed scores or what have you, all of those are contingent manifestations of something that's non-contingent, something that's kind of eternal in a way, 
untouched by do you see what i'm saying absolutely and that that event let's say that you were somehow able to perceive the ninth symphony as an event in itself maybe it wouldn't even be music maybe it'd be the murder of a child and i don't want to just there's a way to misinterpret what i'm saying too i'm not i don't mean it that way i don't mean that it's just a symbol for a representation of an event in beethoven's life or some kind of biographical detail i mean that Mm -hmm. It's very difficult to conceptualize the virtual existence of something that isn't actualized. So the Ninth Symphony in itself, is it this perfect version playing somewhere in the ether? Uh, yeah. No, because it can't be in it can't be in time in the same sense that we so we can't it can't play out. It has to be an all at once. That's thing. right. So like right. And we can we think about this all the time. Like when you think about the Ninth Symphony, you might think of a particular part, but you can think of it as a whole. But you never perceive right. it as a whole. You never watch The That's Shining right. as a whole. You always watch The Shining in parts, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. But you can think of The Shining as a whole. But you don't even know what you're thinking of when you do that. What is yeah. it that I'm thinking of when I think of The Shining? Well, I know what I I know what I'm thinking, but I can't conceptualize it. I can't translate it. It's like the film as an event. You had to be there. You know, when we say you had to be there, we mean there's no way to break down what I'm trying to say, even to myself. You have to experience it. It's an event. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's right. interesting. So, so on one level, you could say that all artworks, they all exist in this imaginal place outside of any type of media specific or medium specificity, as Clement Greenberg liked to say. So... Mm-hmm. So obviously uh, medium is important because the medium will determine the conditions of creation. So if I have an idea, I could say, well, do I write a song with this idea? And I'm, I'm someone who's, I've practiced different artistic disciplines. I, I did music for a long time. I wrote screenplays and made films and I wrote fiction. And there were lots of times when I, I would have an idea and then I would kind of test it out mentally in different media. And I would try to find the best way to express this idea. But the idea didn't ex- wasn't specific to any particular medium. I think some ideas are specific to media, but some aren't. And so an, an idea is a strange thing. And I think that the theory of art that we're kind of teasing out of all this right now is talking about the reality of ideas. What does that even mean? Like, how does that oh, yeah. even compute? a composer named Ferruccio Bassoni who lived in the early part of the 20th century and he was also one of the greatest pianists of all time. One of the things he's well known for in addition to composing original pieces is creating piano transcriptions of especially like Bach organ works. So he wrote a book called Sketch for a New Aesthetic of Music right around, I don't know, maybe 1907, early years of the 20th century. And in it, he comes up with just a lot of really interesting philosophical challenges to taken for granted notions around music. And one of the ideas he takes aim at is the idea that there is an idea and the job of the composer is to create a faithful rendering of that idea. 
And what Busoni said was, you know, every composition is actually a transcription. Some people criticize Busoni for spending so much of his creative energies on creating transcriptions of music by other composers, you know, so that you can play an organ piece or a, a orchestral piece on the piano. The argument goes, why play an arrangement of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony on the piano when you could play a Beethoven sonata that was actually written for piano? And Bassoni's repost to that is to say, and it's an argument that actually concerns much more than just musical transcriptions. He says, all music is a transcription because, say you're a composer and you get an idea for a piece. The first thing you have to do in order to make that idea have any substance at all is to choose an instrument for it to be played on. Yeah. Uh, choose a key signature, choose a time signature before you can even write it down. Even writing it down in notation is you are already transcribing it. And this is something that was very hard for people to understand coming from a tradition which is a fully notated tradition. But in the 20th century, we encounter all these different musics of particularly Afro-Dysporic musics, jazz, blues, hip hop, etc., that aren't created in the space of musical score notation. So it actually, with the benefit of these non-literate traditions, as to say traditions of music that don't assume score notation, score literacy, we're able to see all the more clearly what Bissoni is talking about, that the medium fundamentally affects what you're going to try and say in it, that notation already asserts a certain form on an idea. Likewise, if you're going to compose in Pro Tools as a hip-hop producer might, that too is going to affect the idea. So then the question becomes, where is the pure idea, the true idea? Where is the composer's original idea divorced from all of the accidents by which it manifests? And the implication in Bassoni's sketch for new aesthetic music is that there is no such thing as the original idea. Or if it does exist, it's supernal. It is not accessible to us. And weirdly enough, not even accessible to the composer. Yeah, that's interesting. So you... in a sense, what's weird is the idea that all artistic ideas have a kind of virtuality. And in their existence as virtual things, they are inaccessible even to the people who create them. That's a counterintuitive conclusion. I think there's a middle ground between the two. Like, so, so on, on the one hand, so the idea basically is impossible to manifest, is what Busoni would argue. There is no original idea. All there are are transcriptions of this original idea. But when you're creating something, like when you're writing a piece of music or making, uh, writing a script or whatever, you are constantly guided by the idea. And there's this strange phenomenon that happens that when things fall into place and then when you look back at the work and you start to see connections that you never planned, I think that the idea is present in the good work of art. And maybe that's a measure of a good work of art is a work of art that remains faithful to its original idea, that, it, mm -hmm. that actually manifests that idea in the world. And that makes it an idea that others can have. So in other words, if Kubrick did his job properly, when you watch The Shining, you are experiencing the original idea. 
it would have been completely different if that idea had come up in a different medium to a different artist, but that's the way it happened. And now that's where that original idea is so that the original idea is actually fully manifest in the artwork, but manifestation implies a specific embodiment in a specific context and in a specific artifact. So, you, you can't have an idea without manifestation. You can only have an idea that's manifest. But once it's manifest in a specific artifact, then it becomes accessible in its purity to those who are willing to go there. That's an interesting idea, but it feels very theological. And I'm not saying that like it's a bad thing, but if I were a sort of a... Uh, skeptical materialist type. Of course, materialists are entirely unskeptical about materialism, but leaving that aside, if I were inhabiting a fairly, I don't know, ordinary habit of mind, I would say, yeah, but the accidents of manifestation, so, okay, you're talking about the the shining. Well, you know, I watched it on my TV but like maybe, you know, I don't have the best TV and maybe the color balance was off. This is the kind of thing that drives David Lynch crazy, that people can watch his films on whatever home equipment they have. Or they might even just like watch his films on their phone, which provokes him to uh, like just rage to, to think of it because it's suboptimal. His intention is a certain color balance, a certain sound, a certain density and saturation of sound and color. He has all these really specific things. For Lynch, to him, that is what the artwork is. And if you play it back on your phone or on a shitty TV or the sound isn't very good or whatever, then you're not getting his film. He says that explicitly, right? And so if I'm inhabiting that point of view and I apply it to Kubrick, I'm like, you could make a pretty good argument that I didn't see The Shining. Somebody like the uh, aesthetic philosopher Nelson Goodman makes a similar argument about classical music where he says, what counts as a performance of the work? And he comes up with the actually somewhat crazy and certainly very counterintuitive conclusion that nevertheless is actually somewhat difficult to argue against. He says that a performance with even a single wrong note does not count as a performance of a work. So he has, a, he has a correspondence theory of truth where he's setting the bar of correspondence very, very high. And so from this point of view, it is almost impossible for the communion of which you speak to take place. And somebody inhabiting that much more, I guess, positivistic way of thinking would say the idea that you have that for all of the accidents of manifestation, something of the true pure original idea of the artist shines forth and if we are in a proper receptive state we can receive that the skeptic could simply say well how i don't see how you can rationally argue that what's the means of transmission do you see what i'm saying yeah i see what you're saying and then and then the idea that we can ever get what the artist's idea the idea of, of that sense of empathy or communion or connection between an artist and an audience becomes like a theological idea an idea of like God's grace or something like that, which you can't argue for in positivistic terms. You, at a certain point, simply have to assert it. Now, I'm saying all of this, by the way, as somebody who is completely uh, 
uh, I don't want to say completely opposed to Nelson Goodman's idea of art, but certainly that's not my that's not my jam. That's not how I look at art. Yeah, uh, I am much more apt to agree with you and say, yeah, you know, I feel like when I watched The Shining last night with my son. I was watching the motherfucking shining that well, I was you getting. Were. I mean, you don't need I to was ar- getting, you know, like it, it left me feeling creeped out and weird and paranoid. And I felt like that feeling I get when I encounter art that it's messing with me in some fairly deep way. Like that to me is like the proof of the pudding. It's like, that's how I know that I just had an art experience is that feeling of, of, of something having gotten into my inside. So I can tell you from a, Certainly a subjective point of view, I don't agree with that more positivist idea of art. But then at the same time, I'm not sure how I would argue my point of view against it. Yeah, well, I think that the, the question that you've raised implicitly there was, let's take a, a different example. Okay, so uh, an example where there is an original and then copies. Let's take a Guernica. So Picasso's famous painting. What's the difference between seeing Guernica in a, an art book and, a, re- and a, f- a photo of it or reproduction of it in an art book and seeing the original. Is it a difference in kind or a difference in degree? I think it's fairly obvious, and it, that doesn't mean it's explained, but I think it's fairly obvious that it's a difference in degree because I've never seen Guernica in real life, but I've been affected by it. And I'm pretty sure that if I were to see it, it'd be a huge quantitative difference. It'd be like, boom, it'd be getting hit hard, but I'd be, I'd be hit by the same thing. So hmm. I think there's a, an idea isn't a concept, right? And I think we need to distinguish these two things. If an idea were just a concept, then in order for the concept to be properly transmitted, the medium would have to contain all of its detail. The, the granularity would have to be almost infinite. So for instance, if you can't see the paint on the painting, if you can't see the paint, if you're seeing a, a reproduction, you're missing something and therefore it's already been annulled. But if an idea is an intelligence, so if we think of ideas as, as um, communications, messages, but not messages, mm-hmm. not moral messages, but messages, like things that are coming in to our world that are being spoken, that are being said, then you can allow for a much broader range of manifestation in terms of how you receive it. For, for instance, we're not sitting face-to-face right now, but you're com- we're completely communicating. So mm-hmm. the, almost everything about me has been basically just edited out of your existence. It's just not present. All you hear is my voice, and yet... I'm communicating with you fluidly and yes, clearly. That's right. That's I think right. This, it's the same thing with, a, with an artwork. You need a minimal amount of the elements that make it up. But once that minimum is achieved, once that critical mass or that, that point, that threshold is reached, the full message comes through. And it might come through louder and clearer when you see the original or when you see the shining on the big screen because you're getting more information. But the, the signal remains either way. I am very sympathetic with this way of thinking. In fact, that really is how I feel about art. And it's gratifying to hear you give it expression because that now makes That's me how feel everybody like feels about art. That's what art does. That's what needs to be explained. And if you're not taking... And then, and, and then we have to talk ourselves out of that yeah, experience. Obviously. It's like if you don't account for what I just described, 
then you can't even talk about art to begin with. There's no difference between art and any other activity because there is no artwork without, um, oh, fuck. I, I want it to go somewhere, but it's too crazy. Um, let me just. Oh no! Don't no, do it. Do I it. Can, I, I can't. I'm do not there yet. It. It's it's do. like I'm, I'm still in labor. Um, we, okay. Well, we need to leave this in. We shouldn't edit this out because we want our listeners to have the thrilling experience of hearing us daring our intellects against the ultimate, against the absolute, <laughs> dashing ourselves upon the rocks of our own incomprehension. The the, the bottom line for me is that. It's the experience that needs to be explained and no explanation can do away with the experience. And the experience is that, that the shining is something that exists. It's something that if I tell you, go watch the shining, I know exactly what I'm saying. You know exactly what I mean. And when you see it, you'll understand what I said, why I said it. Um, That doesn't mean you'll like it. This has, this has nothing to do with enjoyment. This has to do with the transmission of ideas and um, yes, and you don't you, like my mother-in-law is obsessed with the films of P.T. Anderson, who's probably my favorite filmmaker. Have you seen Phantom Thread, his latest? No, it's it's a f- fantastic movie. But of course, it like a lot of people don't like it. So my mother-in-law saw The Master, Paul Thomas Anderson's film about basically loosely based on L. Ron Hubbard. She said she hated it. She didn't like what it was about. She didn't like anything about it. But she kept t- every time I saw her, she kept talking about it. And after a year, it's like she was still talking about this movie. So she didn't like it, but she got it. You know, like yeah, like yeah, the, the, liking's got nothing to do with it. Yeah, it's not a matter of whether you like something or not. It's a matter of whether there is an idea in the work or not, and whether that idea is objectively there is an objective thing. And that's my whole thing is that the outmoded concepts, quote unquote, that Benjamin lists, creativity and genius, eternal value and mystery. Well, I would say that these remain now more than ever in the age of mechanical reproduction, the basis on which we can make sense of the experience of art and the aesthetic experience. Without these concepts, there's nothing to discuss. Um, creativity and genius is the extent to which an individual is able to express an idea aesthetically. That is to say outside of language. And that applies even to novels and poetry, of course. And then eternal value and mystery. Eternal value means the objectivity of the idea that the idea is exists in itself outside of time. And then mystery is of course the, that an idea is never an answer, an idea with a capital I, this type of idea. It's always, as Deleuze says, an idea always manifests as a problem, as a question. Heidegger's essay on the essence of truth is really, I just reread it and it's a beautiful essay. And in it, he basically says that in any real expression, in any real instance of expression, any real encounter between yourself, Dasein and, and the world, there is the the expression of mystery that 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 mystery undergirds everything and i think that comes clearly in every good artwork so everything that benjamin dismisses i think remains its centrality it becomes even more manifest and obvious in the age of mechanical reproduction and i think that's what the mezzotint is about one way of tying this back to the show we just released on Lisa Ruddock's When Nothing is Cool, um, for the listeners at home, that's not the last 
episode that we just published because we're recording these things out of order. But um, what we were talking about in that episode is a habit of mind that disdains empathy and I-thou connection, right? That's what Ruddick calls academic cool. Yeah. And while in our conversation, I talked about the ways that that style of academic cool simply does a certain kind of work within the professional context of academia. It's a way of establishing yourself as a sort of a dashing, daring, interesting sort of person in a crowded market where everybody's always trying to stand out. So I was thinking of it in somewhat functionalistic terms. But you can kind of take a step back and say, well, it ultimately is not a problem of academia. It's a problem, again, of, of, of the much larger sort of structure of our culture, the, the shape of modernity itself. I think that there is in the drift of our ideas and our ideas, you know, uh, the culture's ideas considered in the broadest possible way, there is just a general drift away from empathy in I-thou connection. Increasingly, the idea that I can say something and you can know what I'm talking about is an idea that is on, under constant pressure. Think about it just in terms of, you know, issues that get played out in campus identity politics. I actually wrote a post about this on the Weird Studies site. Uh, no one understands you. You read this post. And you think it's very good. Thank you. And I'm not just saying that. <laughs> because it's on the on the website. Right. We're not just flogging our aging wares. Um, <laughs> well, but we are. Yes. Uh, shit. Uh, we're getting to the point in the recording where it starts slowing down badly. Don't. Um, we're just so. getting to something really important, I think. Are we? Okay. Yeah, your, okay. your post. Um, oh, oh, all right. Uh, I'm going to rock you up and finish this idea. But in that, I was talking about the way that a lot of contemporary conversations around identity always go to a place where I say, well, you can't possibly understand me. Let's say I assert an identity for myself, a minoritarian identity. I can assert myself as, I'm going to come up with a ridiculous example that nobody would actually do, but say, speaking as a Canadian, right? right. I'm talking to an American who maybe is trying to speak from a position of presumed universality. Uh, maybe they're talking about Thanksgiving. And they're, I mean, I'm coming up with a deliberately trivial example, right? Because I don't want to make everybody mad. But Thanksgiving um, is a, Thanksgiving I, I, is a contentious example because it, it's, it's caught up in all that colonial stuff. But good. True. Good, the reason good I mention is because Canada and the United States both celebrate Thanksgiving, but at different times. Right. 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 And for different reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I might be talking to an American who is talking about, you know, the tradition of watching the Dallas Cowboys playing a football game on Thanksgiving, for example. And I can turn around and say, well, you don't speak for me. My experience, I speaking as a Canadian, I never watched football on Thanksgiving. Speaking as a Canadian, I never ate the stuff that you ate. Speaking as a Canadian, I can always uh, use my own experience, assert that it's not the same as your experience, and conclude from that that you can't possibly know what I'm talking about. Then the only thing that you can do, 
the American that I am talking to about my experience of Thanksgiving, the only thing you can do is shut up and listen to me tell you about my own ineffable, unique experience. Right. So experience becomes privatized in this way. Mm -hmm. And in fact, this is a kind of a really large problem. Just as repetition is a figure of modernity, so too is privatization. Right. And the idea that you know, everything becomes private property in consumer capitalism, right? Even things that aren't inherently, that don't inherently lend themselves to being parceled out and being made, you know, mine, something that I can buy and occupy and use all by myself. We still figure out ways to privatize experience. So like musical experience, for example, you know, you might say music is inherently something that you tend to listen to in society, but we make recordings of music so that you can now, you don't need to go out in society to listen to a Brahms string quartet. You can stay at home and listen to it on your hi-fi. But this privatization of experience becomes a general figure that infects things that have nothing whatsoever to do with, for example, you know, purchasable commodities my experience itself can become radically private where I speak as an X, whatever X is, and I, because I'm speaking as that thing and that thing is different from what you are, I assert thereby that my experiences are completely different from yours and that there is therefore a kind of a, a, a barrier or a gap that lies between us. What you're saying is basically it's you're, you're, you're pointing out the, the atomizing process that's been at work in our civilization now for like a century. That, that people, yeah. that, that um, this dialogue, empathy, discussion, conversation, communication, all these things are breaking down because our sense of self becomes more and more closed off from everything else. And the idea that there could be real communication between these monads that we've become is becomes less likely. Like, yes. Yeah. And it just doesn't, there's no, so you, so, and the, so I, the idea of the artwork as you describe it as something that for all of the accidents by which it manifests, it retains something of an idea that functions as a communication from the artist and the artwork to the listener, the viewer, whatever. That idea flies directly in the face of this cultural mood that experiences can't be shared, that you can't know what's in my mind and I can't know what's in yours. That epistemological divide, which is always there. I mean, like, we clearly can't read each other's minds, at least not under ordinary circumstances. So, you know, there is always an epistemological divide between people. And so there's always a question for philosophy. How can one mind know another? But the modern assumption is that one mind can't know another. And that disposition leads us to assumptions about what the art work of art is and is not capable of. And what we believe it is no longer capable of is exactly that kind of ability to convey something directly and powerfully. And so bring it back to the mezzotint, you can say that that ghost in the mezzotint, that little creepy skeletal figure, is a ghost. I'm thinking of all kinds of things it can be a ghost for, but one thing is this is a ghost of exactly that numinous power of the idea to communicate across these gaps that lie between people. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. 
Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.